Welcome to this week's episode of Automated, broadcasting live from whenever we recorded this from our global studios in San Francisco's Mission District. We're surrounded by LLM companies that have raised 14 bucks and are willing to spend it all, and homeless people who are taking advantage of all the free services. This, of course, is Automated, our weekly podcast where, where at Polymath Robotics, we talk about robots, how to build them, some silly ones we make up, and then talk about issues facing the robotics industry today. I, of course, am your host, Stefan Sells-Oxmacher, CEO with the shortest and most pronounceable last name in the known universe. Sitting across from me is a gentleman wearing a, you know, a smartwatch and a polymath t-shirt. It could be a mirror. It could be my co-founder. Sir, who are you? Yeah. On the on the topic of t-shirts, there's probably going to be a LinkedIn post. A good friend of mine put together a AI-generated image from one of our episodes of a Bambi crossed over with Terminator. It oh, looks perfect. excellent. I think we should post it as a Teespring and make money doing it. I know someone who did that once during the Silicon Valley disaster. Oh, you do know someone. Yeah, huh? yeah. Though apparently the t-shirts were pretty crappy. So that guy who who hired someone to design the shirts you know, never bought one himself. <laughs> but hey, I made 1500 bucks. This, of course, is automated. This is our weekly podcast we do in two sections. The first of which we live invent into existence a robot. And the second we talk about some sort of topic in, in robotics today. Ilya, what are we going to talk about today? Are we going to talk about deep algorithms? Are we going to talk about cutting edge controls uh, models? Are we going to, you know, redesign circuitry live on air? We're going to talk about trickle-down economics, <laughs> AKA. specifically VCs. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the outlook for VCs and some funny anecdotes from, honestly, even just the last week and a half. It's a fun time in the industry. <laughs> All right, so let's get it started. Let's let's play a game. Uh, so for the game here, we each draw a card. Ilya will kind of simulate being the business co-founder by drawing a, a business use case that we need to build a robot for. All right. I've picked kitchen. Kitchen. Kitchen robots are kitchen always robots. successful. They're, yeah. I don't think there's been a failure in this space. If there's one thing people want in their kitchen, it's a really expensive thing that saves a minimal amount of effort. You know what they call kitchen robots that work? Huh. Appliances. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that hurts me because it's true. I think the technology is pretty obvious. Robotic arm. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. We're going to make fun of so many companies who are working in this space currently. I don't think we'll be able to get a job at any of the failed companies that have tried to do robotic arms. In the kitchen? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Like from a technical standpoint, I always saw these great videos where they're like, we, we hired a world-class chef to prepare an omelet and we motion captured every motion he did. And then we replayed it exactly with the humanoid arm and humanoid grippers. And look, it made an omelet. And it's like, yeah, sure. But what if your egg is slightly smaller? For, for those of or you who, slightly bigger. <laughs> for those of you who aren't robotic robotic arm people, the hard thing about like factories and robotic arms is parts presentation. Yeah. Basically, bringing parts that the robot arm has to interact with in such a uniform way that it can literally just reach the same place, do the same motion to pick something up, and literally move somewhere else to the same exact rel relative position to place the car door. Eggs, for some reason, aren't uniform. It, you know, funny enough, actually, none of our food is really that perfectly uniform. If it is, probably don't eat it. You know, as not a genetic engineer, it seems easier to me to genetically engineer eggs to have perfectly uniform chickens that have perfectly uniform eggs than it is to build a robot arm that can just deal with the eggs. Can I can I give you an easier option uh -huh. at your 
eggplant uh-huh. just filter out the eggs that are exactly the same size <laughs> and these are robot approved eggs which you have to buy on a subscription model along with your humanoid arms <laughs> it'd be like the juicero exactly the cold pressed juice thing where you have to buy the the bag of pre-cut up pre-pressed juice to then put in your thousand dollar appliance just like the juicero it will be a huge success <laughs> So, I mean, there's been a lot of dumb ideas in this space, and I think it's going to be hard to find one that's dumber. Like, you've talked about motion capture ones. Another one that there was a company for a while that was using robot arms to, like, cut food. Because obviously... the robotic horse solution yeah, for cars. A, a six-off arm and a <laughs> knife is the, not the best way to cut a tomato. So, actually, actually, so diverting, maybe, maybe related to kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. A real effort here is to improve the efficiency of meatpacking plants. Yep. Because horrendous working conditions mm-hmm. had huge problems during COVID, and Americans demand meat. Yeah, so you I can't. Need it. It's not. It's not an optional industry. I need industry. fifteen meals a day. Right. Exactly. So one of the surprisingly difficult things that there has been zero automation for is they they've taken you know the the assembly line approach from cars. So the carcasses are moving on an overhead hook. Mm-hmm. And the guys who are working. How does plant, Rocky fit into this? Is he boxing? Each yeah, he's of them? boxing the frozen. Do meat, we need yeah. a robot arm just to punch them? And these guys have these really razor sharp knives mm-hmm. and they, the, they've practiced to carve the thing as it's driving by them to get a particular like flank cut or whatever, mm-hmm. right? They've tried to automate that with robot arms and knives. The problem is there's a lot of very high frequency feeling of how, what the resistance is to yeah. figure out what muscle group you're cutting through or what, yeah. like, have you hit the bone or whatever. And the animals are just not consistent enough. That to your point about parts presentation, it, it has been multiple PhDs have died on this beach <laughs> to try to get meatpacking even somewhat automated, and it's still zero. It's basically zero. I fear that we're getting way too close into real products. There are there's a number of people who are looking at robots for food packaging facilities. Yeah. Yeah. And that's dumb because it's reasonable and makes sense. Yes, exactly. And it seems buildable enough, and who cares about that? The meatpacking, not so much, but like repeatable products, like, I don't know, Twinkies? Never. Fine. Never. That, that's who who needs that? Yeah. So I, I think this needs to be a home kitchen robot arm. Home kitchen robot arm. All right. Yeah. You know, actually, you know what it could be? Uh, okay. Boom. Boom. So I'm not much of a cook, as in right. I cook a meal a month at most, rounding up by an order of two. That's how you keep your figure. That's how I keep my 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 you know, rotundly muscular <laughs> figure. I think, I think what I really need when I'm cooking, I have my recipe. And I don't necessarily need all the things out to start off with. And I don't want them sitting out because I have the feeling that if like, you know, I have raw meat sitting out for an extra 35 seconds, it's suddenly going to spoil and go bad. Yes. Which is reasonable. So That's how the want, botulism gets you. Yep. Um, so I want a robot arm to get things out of my fridge right before I need them while making a recipe. Hmm. I think this is one of those, you know, vending machine would work better. Sort of no, robot, but like, I don't like my wife doesn't like the look of vending machines in the kitchen. Believe me, I've tried. Um, <laughs> so I'm more thinking like a robot arm that like basically opens the, opens the, opens the fridge, fridge door, yeah. finds the thing that I need next and pulls it out. So, so hilariously, the most, maybe not, it kind of makes sense. The hardest part about that whole thing, even going back to the PR2, the PR2 had an example app where you could go and open a fridge door and bring you a beer. Mm-hmm. But that was only feasible because all the beers were carefully stacked up. Yeah. There's a thing you do as a human that you don't really notice is when you're reaching into a fridge, You'll kind of subconsciously wiggle your hand around all your things. So you need wi- to grab the thing you're actually trying to get. So maybe it's like an 18 doff arm that <laughs> can wiggle. It's a tentacle at this point. Yeah, it's a tentacle. <laughs> right? It's a tentacle with a suction cup at the end. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be big in Japan. Uh, <laughs> so, 
It's good for getting a beer out of the fridge and dates. Yeah. Jeez. I wasn't going to make it that clear. <laughs> so, yeah. So, it, I mean, basically, the it could be like one of those, your... like, the Joby things, which is a bunch of balls on an arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twist. Yeah. Same guy who made the, like, he went from phone stands to flying cars. Yeah. Use those things as your arm. So build a whole new discipline of robotics to... To, to grab... Well, actually, Festo, which is a an industrial pneumatics company, mm-hmm. they do a lot of bio-inspired mm-hmm. pneumatic. And, and they've done a bunch of trunks that yep. can do this sort of thing. But even as a human, you kind of wiggle your hand through the fridge. Yep. And knowing knowing the weight of objects and their consistency, you can kind of guess how much you can nudge them without them falling over. Mm. So it's it's actually much more of an intelligence problem than it is a gripper problem. Yeah. And that's the trick. It's it's grabbing an object that's right at the edge of the fridge, not very difficult. Mm-hmm. Grabbing an object at the back of the fridge, practically impossible. But why don't you tech. just unload the entire fridge and then grab the thing at the back? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you'd love that. Botulism won't get you. If it's, <laughs> if it's out of the fridge, in the fridge within four minutes, it doesn't count. Yeah. If it's on my counter for an extra 40, 30 seconds, dead. How about, how about we replace the fridge shelves with little conveyor belts? <laughs> so that as the arm reaches in, it conveys in the right Susans thing. lazy Susans that twist yeah, around. Yeah, lazy students. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think realistically, so you, you have ten, the tentacle opens the fridge door. And I think like, you, you don't, I'm not really grabbing like a jug of milk in this. I'm more thinking like, oh, I'm making a breakfast sandwich, so I need a packet of American cheese. Oh, I was going to say, make it an easy case. Grab a single egg. <laughs> so much easier. Well, then you have to open the egg part. Yeah, exactly. That's, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's like the hardest thing you could grab. And you know, again, most of the most of the challenge again for this entire use case is whether or not it makes more sense to actively update your iPad recipe list of where you are in the recipes, so that the whole thing knows which parts you need next, as opposed to actually getting the thing. Just, just LLM it. Just shout at it. I need eggs. Get me egg. Get me egg. Yeah. And it will return the entire carton. <laughs> it's not a bad solution. So it's so a tentacle arm, you know, probably mounted on the ceiling, go up and down. This will be way less intrusive than adding a vending machine. Mount, ceiling thing? mounted. I thought it was a roving base. Well, ceiling mounted. Well, it could be roving base. Roving base makes more sense. Yeah. yeah or yeah. more more practical. Yes. What do you think this thing's called? I mean, I want to say Dr. Octopus, but that has nothing to do with cooking. Octopus in the kitchen? Kitchen octopus. Hmm. You know, and, and also part of why this is a big vision for the future, as time goes on, it could have more tentacles and it could do more and more things in the kitchen at once. So it could also be stirring things. There could be a tentacle for, you know, flipping things over. Boom. So tentacle play. <laughs> I think that I, I think the, the kitchen octopus is coming to a bed, bath and beyond near you. Starting price of three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Additional attachments can be can be bought for a low low price of twenty five thousand dollars a tentacle. You know what we call this? Mm-hmm. I, sorry, coming back to the name, we call it Jin Yang from Silicon Valley. He developed an app for eighteen ways to cook octopus. <laughs> the whole thread of the show was he was getting funded because everybody thought he kept saying Oculus. <laughs> All right, that's the system. All right, boom. So how is? The funding world's been going for robotics these last few months. You know, it's, it's pretty complicated. My favorite thing is that people constantly ask us when we're going to fundraise again or when are we fundraising or if you talk to a VC, like, oh, yeah, so you're fundraising, right? And I keep on saying, uh, not really. I'm meeting with people and I really don't want to fundraise because it seems hard out there. Yeah. For the last, like, 15 months or so, the consistent feedback I've gotten from peers is like, well, you 
just wait another three to six months before trying to fundraise. It's really hard right now. It's going to be better in three to six months, consistently yeah. for the last 15 months. Yeah, and this has nothing to do with interest rates, I'm sure. <laughs> well, it's not, well, it's not just interest rates. I mean, I think like there's a whole bunch of SaaS companies that went remote. They then also raised a whole bunch of money in 2021. And they stopped spending a lot of their money because like they might have raised $40 million at a $200 million valuation with like three to $8 million of revenue. And then interest rates went up and it became clear they wouldn't be able to raise $80 million. So like, you know, last year they all laid off a bunch of people. Now they have like five to 15 years of runway and they're just chilling and hoping for good times and maybe selling some stuff and hanging out like zombies. Yeah, zombie, um, zombie companies. Yeah. Like a lot They're of the like companies Uber. that like were like, you know, for example, the company whose office we sublet is exactly that profile where they've raised, I think, I think in 21, they might have raised 40, 50 million dollars. Their team went remote in COVID. They're not coming back. A lot of them like, you know, moved out all over the country. So they can't go back to being in office. They've, from what I can tell, aren't making the same progress they used to be making. So there's just a whole bunch of venture money tied up in this company that like isn't going to give it back, isn't going to get bought, isn't going to whatever. It's just kind of chill it. And I think that like there, there's downstream effects of that where the VCs who need to get that money back and give it to their LPs so the LPs can give it back to them aren't able to complete the first part of that step, which means the LPs are already over allocated in venture. So let's let's step back a bit for yeah. for our listeners. So let, let's define a few things. VCs mm -hmm. and LPs who's doing what? What yep. are their what are their interests? So a venture capitalist fundamentally, or at least what, what I'm talking about when I talk about VCs, are investors in theoretically high risk, high growth companies, with the bet being that each investment should be able to, you know, 25 to 100 X within about 10 years. And the thought being that if they make 10 of these bets, five or six of them will go to zero, two to three of them will like three to five X and one of them will return the entire fund. VCs themselves, some of them have their own money, but they get money from uh, limited partners or LPs. And those are like pension funds and whoever, big kind of institutional groups of money where they might allocate 2% of their overall assets to this really high risk, but possibly exciting and high growth asset class. Now, the problem is 2% seems pretty good back in 2018. Some people even got really excited and venture went 2.5%. But then the whole rest of the market, you know, shrank at a couple of different times. So people had a certain amount of money deployed and it, suddenly they had their 4% allocated in venture. So they were literally over allocated. Now, like now that the market's come back, that's kind of fixed itself a little bit. But a lot of these LPs already have money in the venture ecosystem and, and aren't going to put any more in until they get some of that money back. Yeah. And, and the returns tend to be every three years or so. Yeah. Let's, each let's, each let's fund tends to be deployed over the course of three years with the, the hope that it's returned with a profit in 10 years. The problem is basically nobody's going public anymore. I think the numbers of companies going public or unicorns being minted and being public are down like 90% year over year. Yeah, I heard something about that. So like every company founded after, say, 2015 who hasn't gone out of business or already gone public is basically just like hanging on and waiting for good times to come back. There's like a hangover going on in the broader market, but especially in VC land. And we think the good times are coming back next quarter? Oh, always. It's always, we're always one quarter away. Yeah. So before 2020, there had started to be a lot of investment in robotics and, and deep tech, you know, kind of fundamentally because yield went away from SaaS. Now, like 
SaaS valuations are down. So yield in SaaS is theoretically back. There's still a lot of stupid stuff happening in AI. There's companies raising money to build wrappers on top of open AI that like, you know, who knows how that will work out. But functionally, a whole bunch of VCs saw a lot of exciting promises from robotics, you know, eight years ago. Basically, give me $100 million and I'll make you a trillion dollar empire that will solve all autonomy forever. And none of that came true. And now people are just kind of waiting, wait and seeing about the whole space. Is is there a good winner in the in the autonomous robotics space over the last few years we can even point to? So there's companies where like investors have made money, but there's not really companies who have gone and taken over the world. Yeah, I'm thinking the only big acquisition I could think of is iRobot being bought by Amazon. But iRobot is a 20 year old company. I yeah. mean, like Cruise was a really good acquisition in that, like it was a company that raised. $18 million. I think it's terminal valuation at its last round that it raised pre-acquisition was like $80 million and was bought for $600. That's a great investment. But then there are companies who've raised $4 billion and like, or, or Zooks raised $2.5 billion was acquired for $1.5 billion. So a lot of this stuff just like didn't work out. And VCs are starting to think like, huh, maybe this robotic space is different and not going as well as we thought. So like there's still people writing seed checks but I was, I was trading emails this weekend with a friend who has a functioning robotics company. They have a product. They have robots that move in the range of like maybe five plus robots. They are doing at least POCs, maybe not like sustained deployments, but POCs can't raise $2 million. Yeah. Can't raise like two on 10, which for the record in 2021, people, you know, we, we winked at some people and raised more money on better terms than that, which is a crazy thing about this current market. Like, that particular person said he's met with something like 110 VCs over the last six months. He's particularly qualified. I, you know, I don't feel like I should share his stuff without him being on the podcast, but he's particularly well qualified, had previously raised a lot of money for a robotics company and is being told that maybe a Series A requires him to have $2 million in, in ARR. Which uh, is extremely unusual. Because yeah. what what do we that would heard? be a big success for SaaS. Yeah. And in SaaS, you know, you don't have to build hardware and reinvent obstacle detection and this, that, and the other. Yeah. Yeah. What the goalposts seem to have been shifting on us and on the entire mm-hmm. industry over the last year. Which is part say. of why I keep on avoiding fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually, from my CEO coach, I heard a great line that like there's enough robotics companies out there who are struggling and dying fundraising that it's poisoning the well where like we're doing actually pretty good. And VCs are so used to desperate robotics companies willing to do anything for a buck that like it's poisoning the conversations that we're having with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what do, what do you do if you're a robotics company in this field right now? How do you how do you win? I mean, the hard thing is you got to figure out a way to get breakout growth without a lot of money. I think like a lot of robotics companies have to deal with the fact that they're going to be lucky to have two to four million dollars in total to get to a point where they have both a proven technology and a proven business. Yeah. And that, that's hard. I mean, if you have, if, if on the upper bound of that, you can raise a $4 million seed, you can't spend a million dollars on label data. You can't spend a million dollars on hardware. You have to probably have $100,000 of revenue by the time you've spent a million dollars. You need to get a million dollars by the time you even want to start talking to VCs. Like there's still going to be silly stuff that raises for reasons that I don't understand. Absolutely. But it, it's seeming weird, harder and harder and weirder and weirder. Refueling in space. <laughs> yeah. This friend I was talking to specifically was told by one VC he was too early 
that VC had invested in a company that does space refueling, which, you know, is a very mature market these days. Yeah. People, a lot of people use that service. Yeah, like it, it actually, there's an interesting article I read this weekend that an early stage deep tech fund decided to shut down and return their capital. So there's a firm called Countdown Capital. Ironic name in retrospect. <laughs> and like the GP's kind of goal and mission was like, wrote like frontier tech and hard tech in the national interest. So like robots building solar farms and robots for defense and nuclear reactors and whatever. Had a first fund of maybe $5 million, a second fund of 15 to $30 million. And it was leaked by TechCrunch this weekend that having deployed about, I don't know, less than a third of the fund, he decided that there wasn't a model and the market wasn't good enough and that he was just going to return the rest of his LP's money. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting to me because I, I would think, being a little naive in this space, that VCs are kind of pretty incentivized to deploy the money that they have on hand. Totally. I mean, they totally are. I mean, I think the thing is, I mean, the line that was leaked that I liked the most in the TechCrunch article was essentially, it, this doesn't seem like it's a good use of the LP's money, and it doesn't seem like it's a good use of the cheapie's time. And he basically thinks there's better, there's a better chance for him to have more returns elsewhere. And now, like, specifically part of his thesis change was that he didn't think that small sector-focused funds could compete and win in this space, and that, like, there's no value in there being a, an independent $15 million AUM countdown capital in a world where Andreessen Horowitz has, a, I think, a $400 million American Dynamism fund. But I think it's pretty telling that not only does that seem hard, and he made some good bets. I think it was in Hadrian and a couple other companies. It's pretty telling that like, oh, this whole space is so hard. Our companies are struggling so much to fundraise that there's no special thing for us that he decided to return funding. And like, I know off the record that a, there's a couple of other funds in this space who are struggling to raise new funds and are basically only protecting their current companies. I know of another frontier tech fund that announced it was winding down new operations last month. Yeah. And that was a large one. Aside, one that we were hoping might be interested in writing a Series A check for us that, that kind of left the field. Kind of a surprise for us, for yeah. sure. And there's just a lot of this stuff going on where like funds are disappearing. There was a good anecdote. It's your story to tell about one of our recent investor updates. Yeah. A couple, maybe like three months ago, I sent a blast out to a bunch of VCs that I knew and something like 5% of the GPs emails bounced. And like, you know, GPs are general are, partners at a VC fund. It's pretty important folk. Yeah. Like these are folks who like sit on company boards. Them getting laid off means some other GP is taking their board positions. Them getting laid off means like the fund is consolidating management fees in previous funds so as to be able to keep the lights on for longer. And, and I'd say more than half of those GPs had not yet updated their LinkedIn. So definitely was not they quit. It was more like, oh, you got fired, Mr. GP or Mrs. GP in some cases. Another note that I saw recently is a, a, a VC I know responded to an ask of me trying, you know, trying to get some pitch practice with, hey, can you introduce me, introduce me to some LPs to help raise my next fund? And on that list of LPs that they asked for, there was another investor who I know can't raise funds either. It's just this whole weird little self-referential world where so like systemic the right hard now. tech VCs are suffering. And to be fair, all the VCs probably are to some extent, but the hard tech ones are especially. 
I mean, it makes sense why now there's this snowball effect because it looks like LLMs are the one bright spot or AI kind of, yeah. especially language model AI. Kind but of, given the stuff that we've seen nearby, my, hun- my hunch is a lot of that stuff will, will go to zero in the next 18 months as well. But yeah, but it's the current only refuge. Yeah. Right. If it, and it, if it causes this almost snowball effect where more money's coming into it, which draws more people, which pulls more money into it. Because because the hard thing about VC is you can't just make the right bets. You have to make bets that other people also make. So you don't have to entirely be on the hook for some company's success. Yeah. Like unless you're able to write $10 million, a series of eight figure checks, you can't bet on something that's too weird away from the rest of the market. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in terms of what this means for robotics in, in 2024, fundraising is still going to be hard. I, I don't think this year we're going to see some magical bright spot where the world gets easier. I think you, you're going to need to be focused on short-term margin. You're going to need to be focused on getting something out there that makes more money than it costs and covers more of your engineers than not. Yeah, be as efficient as your capital as you, with your capital as you can be. Yeah, because like there might not ever be more capital. And I mean, the thing that we try to pitch ourselves as is in a lot of cases, we'll calculate out some platform fee for mm-hmm. our customers mm-hmm. and we'll try to equate it to the average yearly salary of a good engineer Yep. to kind of show, hey, you know, you can employ five people to build what we're building or you could pay one fifth of that yep. and pay us directly and get the same or better quality. Yep. And with with way less technical risk, right? And frankly, without without paying to build to redevelop tech that is not differentiated and is fundamentally not sellable at the end of the day. Yeah. So I think I think we luckily are in a very good position, this sort of market, mm-hmm. because we're there to help accelerate other groups in these sort of cost saving efforts. But the rest of the robotics industry has to think of how can they do more with less or find a very small niche. They can attack with a small amount of funds. Yeah, I mean, I'd say like if if you can't build a full stack robot with four people, you can't think about building a full stack robot. Yeah, like if if your thing is four too, people, four people sharing a room existing yeah. on ramen. To be clear, yeah, like if and and by full stack robot, I mean a thing that works in production. Yeah, maybe it's not, maybe it's hand built, but like can go work in production environments. If that's not possible in your use case, because the robotics is it involved is too complicated. You need to find someone else for hardware. You need to find someone else like us for autonomy. You need to find someone else for every single part to have a chance yeah. of actually making it to market and making it and surviving the times that we're in. Now the, now the other, the flip side is the companies who survive the next three years are going to take over the world. Yeah. Like there is a lot of companies that survived the t- 2008 to 2011 time period where they were garbage by modern standards but they became worth, you know, nine and 10 figures and like made, made massive returns for the founders, the team members, the investors, but they had to survive the, the one foot in front of the other. You got to make it through. Yeah. Because yeah, this will improve overall and the demand for actual robots hasn't actually changed that much. And it's much. actually kind of crazy increasing. Like we, yeah. I, we're, we're having people talk to us about automating things who you'd never have thought cared about it or wanted it. We have clients wanting to build new projects faster than than you know we'd ever would have guessed the problem is it's uh, the fun, funding the development of effort, effort of it yeah yeah particularly for us australia europe north america has been very successful yep. because there there's similar pressures there and, and really across the world but you know cost of living has increased inflation is high yep. finding labor is short, difficult 
Yeah. People are less happy about immigrants. Yeah. All of which is just making labor harder and harder. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of opportunity to go automate things if you can get a product to market. And that's what we want to help you with, with that polymath. Yeah. <laughs> just to give in our last few minutes kind of a, a counterexample, which shocked me personally, yeah. is uh, one of the clients we were talking to does mining, basically. Mm-hmm. And when they were looking at their costing of efforts, they realized they could save more in just pure diesel cost by just having their operators not idle their engines all the yeah. time than they would in any kind of autonomy program. And, and in this in this particular example, the company has a bunch of people in a remote location and it's it's hot outside and the people don't want to be hot and they don't want to look like they're lazy, good for nothings. So they keep the engine on whether they're moving or not. Yeah, and and cumulatively with their with their eighty vehicle fleet, if they were just running, if they just turned off the engine when they weren't moving and turned it back on when it was time to move, they would save eight million dollars in diesel per year. Yeah, a shocking amount of money. Huge. I think we calculated it was like one sixth of a tanker, like yeah. an oil tanker or something like that. Like yeah. a ridiculous amount of fuel. But yeah, so all that to say that if you're if you're thinking of starting a robotics company, which I highly recommend, despite all the. <laughs> Scary things. It's the most just meaningful said. work you can do. It's the fundamental. It's, it's, it's wonderful technology for the next fifty years. Yes, if you can get there. Yes, but think about building something that has a very particular value chain yep. that you can very clearly express and isn't robots for robots' sake, like making omelets with robot arms, but is actually well, that one's a good idea though. Oh, it's a it's fantastic <laughs> idea. Ten, yeah, yeah, Jin Yang for the kitchen. Yep. definitely. <laughs> no, really, really try to focus in on something that is scalable from a very small scale and can be cash positive as quickly as possible. Yep. It doesn't seem to be another way. And one of the best ways to do that is by working with Polymath. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And that being said, Ilya, what are we up to next week? We're at CES. We're going to be riding through tunnels. That's right. That's the primary thing. Oh, speaking of which, I posted on an internal Slack, but somebody is doing package delivery via underground pipes. I think they probably listened to our podcast and stole the idea. You have to demand a royalty payment. Yeah. Don't stop. Go yeah. directly to collecting cash payments. I think we should definitely take the practice of patent trolls and email any company that does anything like us and demand a $20 billion a year royalty. We'll be reasonable. We'll accept 80% of the profit. <laughs> uh, so we'll be at CES. Uh, come visit us in the North Hall. We'll have some comfy uh, seating to hang out in. We'll yeah. let you drive some robots. We'll have a number of them. We learned recently that we have as big of a robot fleet driving as many miles per year as a 500-person company that I would not name or snarkily post on their LinkedIn. So maybe you can come come by and play with half of those robots. Yeah, so no episode next week, but week after, maybe we'll do a CES retrospective. Or maybe we'll do an episode at CES. You don't know that. I almost certainly we will not. <laughs> all right, so we'll be talking about CES in two weeks. Thanks so much for joining. We'll talk to you all soon. See you next time.